You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Good morning, church. Uh, welcome again. And this morning we'll be continuing our series into the book of Luke. Uh, who, um, we've been going through his, um, his work for the past few weeks now. And we'll be looking at uh, Luke verses or chapter 7 from verses 36 to 50 and the topic of my message this morning is the greatest love um today we will be looking into uh, a parable that jesus um told it's not one of his most famous parable um but it is one of the, a very important gospel parable and i'll be breaking today's um talk into four different chunks to make us make it easy for us to digest on um, the meaning of what Christ is trying to uh, say to us and what, what Luke is, is trying to bring across to those listening or reading what he has written. Um, so I'll start by looking into Luke 7 um, from chapters, uh, from verses 36 to 40. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wipe them with her with her head, and kiss his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say, teacher. And so um, in this passage, we have uh, the story of Jesus Christ being invited uh, for dinner at the home of a Pharisee who was named Simon. And at the time and at the custom um, of, of the, the Jewish people that lived um, at that time, whenever a prominent uh, person, a prominent teacher or religious figure came into the town, someone that was respected by the community came into the town, it was the known thing to invite them over to, um, to, you know, to, the ha- to their houses um, to be um, guests of honor, as it were. And, and, and you will invite your friends and your relatives there to just um, enjoy uh, the, the moment with uh, the prestigious person that was being invited. And so this is what um, the, the sin uh, and, and the, the background is to this story. Now, what we have is a case where um, the news of Jesus being invited would have spread far and wide because Jesus was in the town and he was um, doing preaching and, and doing miracles. And word would have, would have gone out that the, the Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee, was having Jesus at, at his house. And so you had a case whereby people um, heard and knew that where Jesus was going to be at a particular time and the location where he was going to. And so there was a woman who heard about this, and she was referred to as a woman of the city. And now it's quite interesting because it doesn't actually say how she got into the house, um, whether um, she used to work at a house, which is very unlikely because um, she was a, a known sinner in the city. Um, so in all likelihood, she probably disguised herself to enter into that house, to gain, to gain access um, to, 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 to enter into the house. And so um, she probably sh- 
shrouded a face, wore a veil, or um, had some type of disguise on. And we, we realize this further because as the woman came into the house, she um, walked there, probably masqueraded herself as one of the guests, um, the, one of the servants, um, and went behind Jesus Christ, fell at his feet, started weeping, and then essentially cleaning the feet of Jesus with her tears, using the hair of, on her head, and uh, 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 an ointment that she had purchased. And it was at that point that Simon realized who the woman was. So in all likelihood, she had her face covered. And Simon said, if Christ was a prophet, if he knew all things, if he was a prophet from God, um, then he will know that the person touching him was a sinner. And at that point, he would if Christ was really a, a prophet and a, a holy man, he would have pushed the woman away. But Christ knew who the woman was because he knew pe pe who people were and he also knew what was in Simon's heart. And so Christ responded to Simon. And then he responded to Simon as he often does in the form of a parable. And so we read on in Luke 41, um, Luke chapter 7 from 41 to 3. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he had canceled the larger debt. And he said to, them, to him, you have judged rightly. And so we see the, the parable that Jesus gave in response to the thoughts that were, was in Simon's heart. And Jesus is so often known to do this, whereby he will, he will see a, a situation or he will read the thoughts of people's heart. And rather than respond directly to them, he will um, give a parable to better explain um, what the issues were and what he wants people to focus on. And so what is Jesus drawing our hearts to in this parable? What is he trying to get Simon to see? And we have a, a story here where you have two people who were debtors, right? One had... 500 um, denarii in there and the other 50, right? And they both owed the money to the same lender. The problem here for, for both debtors is that they couldn't pay it back, right? And that's what, that's what Jesus Christ draws our attention to, that they were, they were indebted, but they had no hope of paying it back. And traditionally, when you couldn't pay your debt back, what would happen is that you will get sent to um, jail or maybe you'll be made a, a, a slave of the person you owed your money to or you will lose all your assets, Right? If you don't have an asset, then you, get, you, you, you might become a servant or you might get sent to jail. And so Jesus Christ was drawn to the fact that this is a story of two hopeless debtor, debtors. And he was drawing Simon's heart to a very key truth that we don't fully understand. God doesn't see us the way we see ourselves. Now, how do we see ourselves? Very few people consider themselves to be perfect. In fact, if you come across someone that says, I'm a perfect human being, chances are that person suffers from some type of narcissistic disorder. Very few people actually claim to be perfect. Many people will say, it is to err is human. To make mistakes is a human thing to do. You know, and everyone says, I'm not perfect. You know, I'm not perfect. Um, but most people, when you dig to the heart of it, consider themselves to be good, right? So people think that, you know, I'm not in jail. I haven't actually broken the law. I haven't um, actually killed someone. I haven't gone over the speed limit. I, you know, I, I give to charity when I can. So therefore, I'm a good person, right? So normally, our goodness is compared to the imperfections of others or to the evil or the most evil elements 
um, within our society. That normally is how we compare our, our, our own um, sense of, of goodness to others. But what does God say? We look at Psalm 14, 2 to 3. It says that there is no one that is good. No, not one. They've all turned away, right? No one is good. That's what God says to us. There is no one that meets his standard of what is good. Have you ever envied a property of your neighbors? Have you spoken out in, in hate or anger? Have you lost it in your heart after someone else who is not, you're not married to? Have you, um, have, have you desired something in this world that is greater than, um, to a greater extent than you desire God? When God looks upon us, when we do those things, it looks upon us as sinners, as lawbreakers. And because of that, we stand condemned before him. And Jesus is pointing this very fact to Simon, the Pharisee, and, and that you are a lawbreaker just as this woman is a lawbreaker. She's not um, isolated in her sin. She's not unique in her sin. You are also sinful before God. And we live in such a, a time when um, there is a lot of cry for justice. There is a lot of cry for um, righteousness, as it were. And many people are very quick to flout their morality and their self-righteousness on social media and, and, and show how good they are and, and how kind and how nice they are and how woke they are. Well, Christ reminds us that we are born unrighteous. We are we are not without fault. We are not without guilt. We stand as lawbreakers. And no amount of good works we do can make up for it. That's the whole point of it. The two debtors couldn't pay off their debt. We are in desperate need for God's help. Too many people in the church hold this false idea also that we can be good before God by the amount of good works we do. You know, people in the world, they judge the amount of good works by how much money they've raised from how many marathons they've done in their lives, how much money they've raised for charity. In the church, how often have I been to church? How often have I served in church? How often have I made food for other people? This is measure of how good I am before God. God says, no, you can never be good enough for me because you've broken the law. At every turn and every minute, every year, every month of your life, you've broken my laws. That's why God says in his words that our best works are like feel the rags before him. That's our righteousness are like feel the rags. Now think about that. If our righteousness, our best works are like feel the rags before God. Now, what does that mean our worst acts are like? If our best works are like feel the rags. You know, the, the human race is like a classroom of students where the most cleverest and the most intelligent student in that classroom scores an F minus every day, every time. That's how hopelessly, um, that's how much we failed to meet God's standard. We've spectacularly failed to meet his standard. But the good news is this, that despite the fact that we have fallen short, we have missed the mark, God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. He doesn't give us what we deserve. But he's full of mercy and he's full of grace. As it says in Exodus 34, 6, but what does God do? Instead of give us what we deserve, instead of give us justice for us rebelling against him, he gives us Christ. And Christ dies on the cross, suffers in our place. God canceled our own debt 
and then he placed it on Christ. And then he takes Christ's righteousness because Christ is the only person that has lived perfectly and he transfers Christ's righteousness onto our own account. And this is what fundamentally Jesus means when it says the creditor cancels the debt of both. It's not just a mere cancellation of the debt. It isn't just a mere removal from um, the negative, so from your, so your deficit account to a neutral account, but from a negative account to a massively positive account. So God takes away our debts from us, and then he gives us the righteousness of Christ. And that's what it means in the Bible when it says that we've had eternal riches stored up for us in heaven. Ephesians 1, 3. That we've been given the righteousness of Christ. That means that God no longer sees us as enemies, but he sees us as his children. And that's why it says in Romans 18, 16 to 17, that we are heirs now of God. We are heirs of the kingdom of God. That means that we used to be enemies. We used to be rebels. We used to be anti-God. But now he's made us not just a neutral party, but now heirs of his kingdom. Now, what should our response be to this? We'll look at this in, in Luke chapter 7, 44 to, 40, um, 44 to 47. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you this, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. The notion that we've been saved from facing God's justice, and on top of that, given a rich inheritance without any human effort on our part. It's like being given the keys to a, an expansive, huge mansion without contributing to a single brick of that mansion. You think about it. You've just come out of prison for doing time that you deserved. And then you were driven to a house. And then you stand in front of this huge house. And then the owner of the house says to you, this is the key to the house. It's yours. And the owner drives off. And you are there in front of this huge mansion. Just coming out of prison. You've done nothing to deserve it. This is, this is the picture of what God does for us. This is what it means that he cancels our debts. He gives to us what we don't deserve. He gives us riches that we don't deserve. And the first thing this should cause in us is humility because we haven't worked for any of it. We didn't earn a single brick in that mansion. And this humility should lead us to an attitude of gratitude. We should be grateful that we've inherited this thing. And this should lead to devotion to the one that saved us because only he saved us. Only he gave us the mansion. Only he gave us his riches. So we need to have an attitude of humility, of gratitude, and of devotion towards God. That's the right response. My worship begins when I understand the depths of the sin from which I've been redeemed from. I need to understand where I've been saved from, what I've been saved from. 
And we see this woman, the woman of the city, she exhibits all these three things, humility, gratitude, and devotion. We see her as she comes down and bows down at the feet of Jesus, penitent in tears. She kisses the feet of Jesus, which would have been caked in dust at this point because Jesus didn't have a, a Land Rover. He didn't have a, a Peugeot. He didn't have a, a motorcycle. He walked everywhere. So his feet would have been covered in dust. And we know at this point that Jesus hadn't had his feet washed because he later says to Simon, you, you never washed my feet. And so she was kissing feet covered in, in dust, in dirt. This is a, a picture of someone that comes to a person that is greater than them. The woman recognizes that Christ is so much more greater than she is. And because of that, she has no problem but to humble herself. In Christ, she sees more than a mere teacher. She sees the one that saves her, that gives her hope of all her sins being wiped away. And she doesn't just stop a uh, worship there. She takes this ointment, this perfume she, she, she had with her. In all likelihood, it wasn't a cheap perfume. It was probably one of our, our most treasured possessions. And what you will do with ointments, as Jesus Christ says, you pour the, the oil on the head. And it will bring fragrance to the hair of the person. But this woman doesn't even deem her expensive perfume worthy of being poured on Jesus' head. It had to be poured on his dirty feet. This is how much she worshipped Jesus. This is how much she brought herself before him and showed him a devotion, her gratitude, a humility. But we contrast this with Simon the Pharisee. He didn't even fulfill the, the customer, customary promise. Um, practices of honoring the guest of great importance. Normally, when um, guests come into your house at that time, you have their feet washed. When they come into the house, you'd kiss them. It's a very Mediterranean thing. The Italians do it all the time. The Arabs do it. The Jews do it. They kiss each other. It's a very, very Mediterranean culture. But Simon didn't kiss him. And I, I, don't, I don't think Jesus here is, is holding a grudge as to Oh, how dare you not kiss me or wash my feet? Jesus is, is, is not that petty. But what Jesus is trying to bring to the fore and highlight to Simon is that the woman recognizes him for who he is. And that's why she brought herself low before him. However, Simon doesn't recognize who Jesus was. In fact, he thought in his mind, this man can't be a prophet. And Jesus is saying, you've, you've missed it. You don't know who I am. Your self-righteousness has so clouded your judgment that you can't even see what the woman sees. And how often are we like this? Where, like Simon the Pharisee, we make a public show of inviting Christ into our house. We show outward signs of connections with Christ. Within the church, we, um, we're active within the church. We do all sorts of things within the church. You know, we speak the right Christian words and um, you know, if, if, we, if you're a youth in the church today, you might even go to Christian festivals like New Day. Right? We do all the things that Christians do. But in reality, are our devotions, our affections, are they really for Christ? Are we really devoted to Christ? Is it something we do so that men can see us? Or is it something we do because we are in love with Christ? And, 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 a lot of times, 
our relationships with Christ is very surface deep because we don't love him because our love for him is surface deep. And this is why Christ said in verses 47, he who is forgiven little loves little. Another way to say this is he who thinks he is in need of little forgiveness is only capable of demonstrating shallow love. But he who knows he is in need of great forgiveness is capable of demonstrating great love for Christ. We need to know how much God loves us, how much he has forgiven us. The reason many of us don't know this is because we, we've fallen back into works. We forgot that we came into the kingdom of God by the grace of God. The good news of the gospel has now been made stale by the good news or the not so good news of salvation by works. Many of us are running on the, on the fumes of, of works and works-based salvation rather than running on a full tank of the grace of God. And that grace is that he loved us when we had no affection for him. Even when we came into his family and, and we fall, he still loves us and he still brings us closer to him. That's what it means. We start by grace. We, end, we run, by, run this race by grace and we end this race by grace. In this world, we see many people that um, are increasingly moralistic. They demand a public show of good, good works. You, you have to say these things on social media for you to be accepted as a righteous person. Your church has to declare these things and write these five things to declare that they are good. But the church cannot be like that. We must continually shed off every vestiges of moralism and of good works, as it were. We must remind ourselves that it is God's grace that sustains us minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day. If it wasn't for the good works of God, then we would be in the, in, at the mercy of our sin and in despair with no hope in sight. This is one of the, the things that I really love about Jesus is that he loved me first. And not that he loved me first, that his love for me is greater than my love for him. Can you imagine if my love for him, which is up there today and then down here tomorrow, was he loved me that way? No, he loves me always. He loves us always. And that's the hope we have. In conclusion, we'll look at Luke 7, chapter 7, 48 to 50. And Jesus says, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In the end, the people at the table heard what Christ said to the woman. And they said, how can he forgive sins? Is it God? Does he think he's God? And Jesus could have responded back to them, but he focused on the woman because she had his attention and because she recognized him for who he was. And what did Christ say to her? Did he say, now you need to go and do X, Y, and Z? Now you need to go and paint the, 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 the tabernacle or now you need, to, you need to go and uh, create a new synagogue? No, no, no. Christ says, go. 
your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. What are we placing our trust in today? Where is our faith in today? Who or what are we trusting in today? Are we trusting in a world that comes up with new moralistic standards and new um, standards of righteousness every six months? Or are we trusting in Jesus Christ who loved us before we ever dared to mention his name? Is our faith in our works? Is our faith in how society sees us? In our standing in society? Or is our faith in Christ and what he has done on the cross? Christ said to the woman that her faith has saved her. Her faith was placed in Christ. She trusted that only Christ can make her whole. What does this mean? When in John um, 6, Christ had a, a sermon and people fell away. People were angry with what Christ said to them in the other sermon. And, and many of the disciples of Christ, it says in that passage, left Christ. And Christ turns around to the 12 and he says, are you also going to leave me? And Peter responded to Christ. He says, where are we going to go to? You alone have the words to eternal life. And we believe that you are the Christ and we know you are the son of God. And that's the question. That's the, that's the, that's the response. Where are you going to go to? Where else are you going to be made whole? Is it your righteous works? You see, today, if you were to measure our righteous works, today we're pulling down statues of people in the world because, you know, today's morality and today's standards is different from yesterday's standards. And then tomorrow people will pull down our statues because the standards of the world change. But where are we placing our trust in? Is it in Christ? The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We need to make that choice. And if you are thinking about what I'm saying, if this is touching your heart, do not put it off till tomorrow and say, tomorrow I will make a choice. Tomorrow I will do something about it. No, this is the hour. This is the moment to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Only he can save you and give you a new heart and godly desires. He doesn't promise us an easy life, but he promises us a new life free of, of the guilt that comes from our past sins, free from the shame that our sins bring to us. This is what Christ promises us. So we remember that God saves us by his grace in Christ. And when we have faith in him, we put our trust in him. We experience that full salvation that God has made known us through Christ and so I'll pray thank you Father because you loved us first thank you because you did not wait um, for us uh, to really get our acts together before you decided to love us and lavish your grace on us I thank you because you are alive today and you are working in our society today I thank you because you want to save us. 
And you don't want to leave us alone like orphans. And so, Father, I just pray that you will transform our hearts. That the hearts of those who are listening to this world word will be transformed. That they will, they will hear your message and they will realize that only you can save them. Lord, put it in our hearts to trust in Christ, Lord. To have our full faith in him and him alone. Give us new desires, new longings, new motivations, Father, we pray. And I pray, Lord, that from now, that our lives will be marked by humility towards you. Gratitude for what you've done for us on the cross. And for devotion all the days of our lives, Lord. May this be what marks us and, and makes us separate and distinct from the peoples of the world, Lord. That they will see us and say, they are the children of God. Help us, Lord, in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church, Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content.